There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Anna Rasbridger, I'm the editor at Prospect, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by the veteran political journalist and pollster Peter Kellner and Naomi Smith, who's the chief executive of the campaigning organisation Best for Britain and co-host of the rival podcast Oh God, What Now?, formerly Remaniacs. And we're going to talk about the winter of discontent, which is continuing as cold and as discontented as ever, with a building public service crisis, escalating industrial action, and the government responding by trying to pass legislation to control the unions. I suppose our intention today is to try and work out if there's any clear thinking behind this approach and what's going to happen next. So, Peter, coming to you first, set the scene for us. I mean, outline the political landscape and... Perhaps you can compare with previous episodes of Industrial Action. Well, let's start, Alan, with the current situation. Um, a YouGov poll actually done just this week finds that, broadly speaking, the public divide two to one in favour of the nurses going on strike. They're divided but marginally supportive of the teachers going on strike. They're divided but marginally against the railway workers going on strike. Now, YouGov asked the same question a couple of weeks before Christmas and found very similar figures. The slight changes could just be sampling fluctuation. There's nothing to suggest there's any major change. But let me add a, a word of caution looking back into history in that, in the end, governments are usually judged by results, not necessarily on the policy during the course of some conflict. So go back, for example, to the late 70s, the winter of discontent, which brought the Labour government of the 70s down and led to Margaret Thatcher becoming Prime Minister. Well, initially, there was a lot of support for the government's then quite strict pay policy and hostility to the unions going on strike. But within weeks of the strike taking place and famously rubbish piling up in, in the streets and other services being disrupted, um, Opinion moved quite sharply against the government and the Conservatives moved into the lead and what support there was for the disputes frayed away. And the other historic example I would cite is the war against Iraq, the Blair War against Iraq, what, 20 years ago this spring. Now, before the war, the public was evenly divided or whether it would be right 
to go and work with the Americans to go after and invade Iraq. A couple of weeks into the war when Saddam Hussein fell, it was quite a quick and immediately successful military operation, <clears throat> the British public was two to one in favour of the military action. Six months later, Iraq in chaos, no weapons of mass destruction being found. By then, the public was two to one against Britain having taken military action. So if I was to try and make any form of prediction about where we will go in the next weeks and months ahead, I would say it depends very largely on whether the government is in the end seen to succeed or fail. If people come to the conclusion when this is all over, it's been a drawn out horror for us all without success, the government will be blamed. If the disputes end fairly quickly, and especially if they end on the government's terms, there will be a lot of sympathy for the public sector workers and the fact that their real pay has been cut. But if the government has seen to succeed, I think you'll see Conservative support going up. Is the support that we're seeing for the unions, and you're saying it in two of the cases it, it's marginally pro, one's marginally against, that, that seems to me historic. That there, that there should be so much public support for strikers. Yeah, that, that's right. I don't see any historic example that I've looked at going back decades where there's been such public support for a strike. And I think you're seeing two things. One is there is broad support by many people for public sector workers whose pay have slipped behind, which is why something like four in ten back the railway workers, four in ten or five in ten back the teachers. But when you come to the nurses and the ambulance drivers, where supports for the strikes are well over 60%. I mean, that's something I have never seen before. So I think you've got a, you've got a double effect. Quite a lot of support, especially from non-conservative voters, for public service sector workers in general, and in quite a lot of specific support, including a great many conservatives for health workers. Naomi, I mean, Peter says it, it, if, as it were, the government can pull this off, the opinion could split. But what does the success look like if you're Rishi Zunak? Because at the moment, his strategy seems to be to say, well, this has got nothing to do with us. I mean, <sighs> how, how could you bring it off? Well, I mean, their original plan was to just hope that public support would fall for the strikers, that Labour could be taking the brunt of it because of their links to the trade unions. And that, that certainly seemed to be their initial strategy for it. And of course, that hasn't worked for them at all. And as Peter laid out, you know, sort of unprecedented levels of support. I think there's been some narrowing. I think people were in support of the railway workers' strikes in previous polls, you know, a couple of months before the end of 2022, and now it's sort of shifted away from them slightly. And I wonder if some of that may have been as a result of the high levels of homeworking now and people not having to be so reliant on trains to get to work. And so the government have had to switch their strategy, and they're now, of course, thinking about legislating. And so we've seen this week the introduction of the anti-strike bill or of the anti-worker bill as opponents of the government are referring to it and this is about mandating minimum service levels for key workers who unions have balloted to strike and may even allow employers to fire 
employees who ignore demands for them to work on industrial action days. And I think there were suggestions that the bill could even allow employers to sue unions so that there may be amendments to the bill in that in that vein and certainly worth keeping an eye on so yeah government response was sort of i think hoping that they could ride it out and and you know effectively be in a standoff with the unions and the hope that labor would get the blame for it because of their union support and they're now realizing that that the public sympathy is very much with these people who have taken a real terms cut despite having seen us through one of the worst pandemics uh, in human history and so now they're, they're trying to legislate their way out of it Peter, have you done polling yet on these anti-strike laws and what people think of them? Because, I mean, clearly trade union membership is much lower than it used to be, but maybe there is a residual feeling that that this somehow feels wrong. I don't know. No, is there I, any polling on that yet? Well, listen, I, I've, I've not seen polling. It doesn't mean to say there hasn't been any, but I'm, I'm not aware of it. But I have to say, you know, I'm trying not to impose my own political and social values but I think to a lot of people, they were saying minimum service levels are fine, but we won't get to the minimum service levels we were expecting before these strikes. If you think about A&E and ambulances, for example. And so I would be surprised if the government makes any gains. But again, the more, the more important long-term figure is, is what support will be like if this legislation goes through you know if it is seen to work then the government might come out of it okay but if as i suspect it runs into trouble in the house of lords it becomes a very messy process without a clear outcome then i'm not sure the government will gain much kudos in short alan i'm fairly skeptical that this will do the government much good Naomi, this this has been combined with anti-protest legislation. You can't walk too slowly down a street now without the policeman arresting you. For is, is this offensive to some British tradition of protest and free speech? I, I mean, I was listening to Starmer yesterday, as a former director of public prosecutions, saying we don't need any more laws. You know. Um, is there a danger that there's going to be a backlash against these anti? anti-freedom aspects of these um, the, 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 these twin pieces of legislation? Certainly, and in fact, the, uh, the police have <laughs> led the charge on that front and said, we don't need these, uh, we don't want these, and you are politicising the police by making us have judgment calls on whether somebody is protesting, whether they are breaching any of these new uh, pieces of legislation. We had the policing crime sentencing and courts bill last year that went a very long way in curtailing the right to demonstrate peacefully um, and and put you know clip the wings of protesters that make noise or can be visible in such numbers as it could cause blockages to the exit and entrance of parliament and things like that so you know no longer being able to take your message outside the mother of all parliaments I think is a, a huge authoritarian move and, and this public order bill, which is I think the one you're referring to, goes even further. And in both cases, the police have said this is vague, it is woolly, it is very hard for our 
police force on the ground to interpret. And as we saw with the Sarah Everard vigil, which was not a protest, it was not a demonstration, it was a vigil that, of course, descended into chaos because of heavy-handed response from the police. They don't want to be drawn into future things like that. And goodness knows, the Met certainly don't need any more bad news stories. If I were talking to a government minister, I would say beware of unintended consequences. You and Ireland will remember from the mid-1980s a raft of anti-union legislation, one of which was to require unions, which had most of them, not all of them, had political funds, which they used to support the Labour Party and other political causes. And a law was passed saying that for a union to have a political fund, it must ballot its members every so often, every so many years, so that members had the right to tell their unions Yes, you can have a political fund, or no, you shouldn't. You should not dabble in party politics. And the government said this was to give union members more power, but its clear secondary objective was to cut some of the money going to the Labour Party. They thought a number of unions, their members would say, no, we don't want our union dues to be going to the Labour Party. Well, you know, they all held these ballots. Every single union that had a political fund voted to keep it. A number of unions that had not had political funds held ballots and some of them chose to have ballots and the whole process led to unions, union members being much more actively involved in the general political outlook of their union. So in practical terms, the legislation had precisely the opposite effect from that the government intended. Naomi, I'm trying to work out this is almost sort of beyond anything that you could really pull and or anything I've seen polled, but there are quite a few commentators, not just on the left, not just the usual suspects, who are now writing about how n- nothing works in this country and linking this in a way to George Osborne and the, the programme of hollowing out the public services 10 years ago. Uh, do you think people are making that connection? Or, I mean, how how are people interpreting it. I mean, the, the Tory spokesman wants you to believe this is all due to COVID and the pandemic and, and so on and so forth. But I wonder whether the public is now drawing a different lesson, because that surely will influence how they vote next time round. Yeah, I mean, look, the job of Prime Minister is to run the country. And right now, nothing in this country is running. And you increasingly hear people talking about the system is broken. The system is broken. When we do focus groups at Best for Britain and uh, get feedback through our digital campaigns, that is a very clear message that comes through. Now, some people mean the political system isn't working for them. Others mean the NHS system is broken. But for a great many, it's just this sort of overriding sense that the country is creaking at the seams, whether it is the NHS or the railways or other things. I think the damage of the disastrous trust quarteng budget signalled a tipping point for a lot of people and actually Peter and I were talking about this earlier this morning my team who are a very young team are always surprised to learn how few people have mortgages in the UK and that the vast majority of, of owned homes are owned outright and traditionally older wealthier voters tend to vote conservative But those very same voters now have children 
in their 20s, 30s, sometimes even early 40s, who now cannot get on the property ladder because the mortgage products have been pulled and the affordability ratios have have changed and they now just don't face any prospect of getting their own home. So I think for you know parts of the country that traditionally have always voted Conservative, the damage that that budget did has, I think, given them a huge pause for thought over whether or not this received wisdom that the Conservatives are the party you can trust with the economy, you know, it has, has now really been thrown into question after the last 12 years of falling real wages, of people just not feeling that they and their children's lives are improving for the better. So I think I think it is beginning to cut through. The government, of course, will ad nauseam go on about the challenges of global factors, the pandemic, of course, and swiftly followed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But more and more studies are showing there is also a big Brexit effect on top of that, that that cannot be denied. You know, very serious economists now writing those kinds of papers, the loss to overall GDP, the increase on household bills, food bills in particular. And that is so totemically seen as a, you know, post, certainly post-2015 conservative project that I think it is in itself feeding into that narrative that people are beginning to come to the realisation that actually these guys are not serving us well, they're not delivering on the economy, and it's perhaps a time to just give somebody else a chance. Does that chime with your feeling, Peter? Uh, no, I agree absolutely with Naomi, but let me add one bit of, of polling evidence, which I think is very intriguing. It's the issue of competence, which in, is often the most important real feature of voters' choices in an election. Which party is more, which party, which leader is more competent? And what you normally find is if you ask about the Labour Party and the Labour leader, you'll get broadly similar figures. Maybe, you know, often the Labour Party leader is slightly more popular than the Labour Party, but the figures are broadly similar. Equally, Conservative leaders often run a bit ahead, sometimes a bit behind, of their party. But you see broad similarity. Now, that's true at the moment of the Labour Party. Istanbul is running ahead of the Labour Party, but in both cases, the figures are in the 30s for competent, in the 30s for not competent. Now, Sunak and the Conservatives, a very different story. Conservatives' reputation fell off a cliff last summer, first with Boris Johnson, then even more under Liz Truss. And it's hardly recovered since. The latest YouGov figure I've looked at, only 1%, 1-4% said the Conservative Party is competent, 61% said it's not competent. Terrible figures for, as, as Naomi says, what are the Conservative Party for if not to be trusted to handle the economy competently? But Rishi Sunak, 39% competent, 32% incompetent. He runs not just ahead of his party, but miles ahead of his party. You know, the median voter says Sunak is reasonably competent. The Tory party is hopelessly incompetent. Now, I, this, is, this kind of difference is completely new in, in the history of polling in British politics, which goes back roughly to the Second World War. And I wonder what's going to happen to that. I would have thought in the end, either 
the Tory party is going to drag Rishi Sunak down or Sunak is going to lift the Conservative Party's reputation up but in this very strange situation which seems to be quite unstable when there is such a huge difference between Sunak's reputation and his party's reputation. Peter, you will know this better than I, but to what extent do you think his perceived weakness will begin to show in his approval ratings and his competence? Because we have got a Prime Minister at the moment who is presiding over a deeply divided party, despite having this rip-roaring majority that he inherited from the 2019 general election, but yet he can get almost nothing through Parliament without pulling it or watering it down or making concessions left, right and centre. So this week we've seen that with the online safety bill, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill seems to be on freeze, the House of Lords is poised to amend the EU retained law bill incredibly heavily and enter a long ping-pong with the Commons over that. Now, most normal people do not have the time to be laser-like focused on the shenanigans in Parliament. But at some point, presumably, and Alan touched on this earlier with regards to this legislation around strikes, if he can't get it through and can't get anything through, do you think at some point that will begin to trickle down to how voters respond to him personally? Short answer, yes. I think that's the real danger. You know, if all these things you say, the fuss he's had in the Commons and, of course, the strikes, and if they go on, then it's more likely that people will stop thinking Sunak's competent and them saying he's just another Tory and we think the Tories are dreadful. I think at the moment that is a more likely outcome than people saying, actually, Sunak's getting things done, maybe the Tories aren't so bad after all. Now, I think the risks for Rishi Sunak at the moment are really very serious. I'm fascinated to read, there was a piece in the Telegraph this morning by Sherelle Jacobs, who, who's a strong Brexiteer, saying that the, the Tories' incompetence extends to their, uh, <laughs> their conduct of Brexit, and they've buggered that up so much. The headline is, Britain is going to rejoin the EU far sooner than anyone now imagines. Well, that may not... Don't tease uh, me, uh, Alan, don't happen. tease me. But, <laughs> but, uh, it's the hope but, that but kills you. Sort of senses, sense of betrayal that they can't even manage Brexit properly. Let's just think about Starmer and Labour's response. I mean, either of you jump in first. I mean, how do you think they're playing it? It, it? It's tricky for them to be painted into a corner of either not supporting the unions enough or supporting them too much. It's a, it's a fine line to tread. Alan, I think on the anti-strike bill, Starmer has reiterated that Labour would repeal any new anti-strike laws if it wins the next election and indeed if those bills have gone through to become acts of parliament he's accused the government of trashing trashing centuries old liberties and has set out a plan to un to address all of the underlying issues so of course this isn't just about pay you know striking staff will tell you that it, it is not just about pay it's about protecting the service and when you see the government failing to recruit teachers failing to recruit doctors and nurses people leaving the health service in droves it's very hard to argue with that kind of analysis and Dharma has vowed to introduce a fully costed plan to deal with the crisis in the NHS that he thinks would end the walkouts to roll out the biggest training program in the health services history to try and provide more of those essential medical staff that we so need and crucially has made a real commitment on reforming the care system and of course we know that part of the problem with ambulances not being able to drop people off is because you can't get people out of a and E onto wards because people can't get out of wards and into the care system because 
that that is creaking too. So strong on all of that, weaker on putting any kind of figures on that. So Labour, so far, correct me if I'm wrong, I think have refused to specify what type of pay rise it would offer public sector workers. And last week when asked the go- whether the government's offer to nurses of 2% is too low, Starmer said he couldn't say what the right percentage would be. I think that holds for a while, but I think he will continue to be pressed on that if he wants to be seen as this Prime Minister-in-waiting that, that he, he is so clearly, you know, pitching himself to the country as being. Peter, um, how do you think Labour's doing? Right, well, I'm going to give you two opposite answers, one from me as a citizen <laughs> and the other from me as a pollster. As a citizen, the thing that's missing in this whole debate, both Labour and Conservative, is, look, what's happened with energy, imported energy prices is the country is poorer. And it seems to me what we've needed and lacked is a national conversation and political leadership about how to share out the pain who should be protected more who should be protected less we've not had that and i think that is a failing of the leaderships of both main parties now as a pollster i would say look the dispute of the strikes it's a matter of framing and the government is trying to frame it in terms of what the country can afford and Labour is framing it as government incompetence in allowing these strikes to drag on. And I think the Labour pitch is more effective. I say that both because of what the polls are saying now, but also, you know, in the past, I mean, famously in 1974, coal strike, three-day week, Edward Heath, the Conservative Prime Minister, calls a, a snap election and the pub seems to have the public on his side and in the end loses the election because the public said in the end if the government can't sort it out and we're landed with our lights going off for three hours a day then the government's screwed up so i think labor is winning the framing war and if i were giving labor polling advice as opposed to if you like citizen decency advice i would say yep you're doing the right thing Different things are happening in Wales and Scotland, and Starmer is taking uh, some comfort, particularly from how the Welsh government has handled the strikes, how the Scottish government has been much more on the front foot in dealing with the health unions and, and solving the problems there. What are the lessons there? Okay, um, look, I, I don't claim to be an expert on the inner of either Welsh or Scottish politics. Um, on a number of these issues, Wales seems to have um, um, managed outcomes, uh, not in everything, but on most things, um, more successfully than in England. And you've got a, a Labour administration um, in Wales. Now, I don't know how they found the money. Um, and of course, the Conservatives put forward the argument, and I believe correctly, that a lot of, especially health outcomes, NHS service measures in Wales, where the Conservatives haven't been in power for ages, uh, are worse than in England. In Scotland, where the Scottish government seems to have many of the same problems as the London government, I think it comes back to the point that, you know, fundamentally, there is a real issue at the moment that we are poorer as a nation, and it's difficult for any government to sort things out unless they can establish a national consensus, a sense of national ideas as to how we share out the pain. I mean, look, personally, and I would say this in England, in Scotland, in Wales, 
I would like to see one of the major politicians say, right, at the moment, there should be a maximum full-time wage increase of, let's say, 2,000 or 2,500 pounds a year, i.e. one that protects or goes a long way to protecting low-paid workers who take preference in percentage terms over workers on 40 or 50 or 100,000 pounds a year. I think properly calibrated and properly argued, you could build up quite a lot of public support for that. But that means having an explicit argument about the fact that there's national pain and how that should be divvied up. So what do you think, when you look into your crystal ball, how do you think this is going to end? Is it, are there going to be negotiations? Perhaps there are negotiations behind the scenes now. How do you think this crisis is going to resolve itself? All disputes end, and most of them end in negotiation. The one historic example of one side clearly winning were the miners, actually, in the 1980s of Margaret Thatcher. First time rounds, 1981-2, the miners won. Thatcher had to give in. Four years later, she won, and the miners had to give in. Now, the lesson of the second miners' strike, in particular, was if the government is going to win, it needs a smart strategy from the outset. Thatcher didn't have that in 81. She did have that in 84-85. And I think looking at the government now, I don't see a strategic roadmap to government victory. Therefore, in the end, there will be a compromise, there will be negotiations, and to some extent, the government will have been seen to give in. And the longer it drags on till we get to that point, the more the government will be blamed for allowing the chaos of this winter to do so much damage. And I think it's also against the backdrop of a mixture of vanity project spending so take the festival of brexit flop 120 million and then absolute mismanagement and we can talk about ppe scandals we can talk about failed test and trace system at best for britain we run a tracker that we call the government wasteful spending tracker and that's currently sitting at 70 billion since 2019 and just tots up all of those things that have been complete failures and these are things that cut through with the average person. You know, they know about the PPE scandal. They know about the complete failure of test and trace and the extreme cost of that. And then they're hearing, oh, but we can't afford to possibly pay nurses more. And real wages have fallen for their fastest rate in 20 years in the last quarter, with public sector workers being hit the hardest. And And so there is a real sense of empathy with public sector workers by non-public sector worker voters because you know many many of them are feeling it too and when you hear stories like nurses having to use food banks or eating patients leftovers which has been reported some nurses are resorting to the sheer emotion of that will cut through more than any big number ever will in terms of sentiment towards how the government's handling all of this? One of the things I've been wondering about the Conservative strategy, looking at it in a very sort of hard-nosed, even cynical way, when you've got the nurses with so much public support and the other strikers a fair amount but less, why don't they settle with the nurses and then seek public support for a harder line on the other workers? And I wonder what's happening is this, that if the government gave a pretty generous deal to the nurses, say 8 or 10%, 
then the other strikers and the other public sector areas would demand the same and it would prolong those strikes. So I wonder if what the government is trying to do at the moment is get some sort of deal, especially with the rail workers, get that done and then offer the nurses a more generous deal than that. In other words, I wonder if their sequencing is to get the other major public sector deals done in as favourable way as possible and then be generous to the nurses. Well, if that is what they're trying to do, we'll see if it works. But the mood music of the last few days has been maybe on the way to a settlement of the rail dispute, but not yet to the nurses. So I wonder if the government is trying to clear out the non-nurse strikes first and then give a generous deal to the nurses. Interesting thought. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Naomi, so much for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to hear this discussion. If you enjoyed it, escape the echo chamber, grab a copy of the most recent issue of Prospect magazine. You could also go online and find it at subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. And there are other pieces there from Sheila Hancock, from Isabel Hilton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and many more. And if you're in it for the podcast, try a different podcast, which is The Prospect Lives, a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, which include Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, the librettist and Church of England priest, Mike Brearley, the former England cricket captain. And they write about their different lives, their different fields in a way that can make you laugh, can make you cry but certainly take you into the lives of people who live differently from you and me. So just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Goodbye and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.